Hello, friends. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason, and uh, I appreciate you being part of our program here. Uh, last uh, show, I talked uh, a bit about um, the hard realities of spiritual growth. I wanted to pick pick up on that again and continue uh, some observations there for you before we get to the rest of your calls. And um, I had been talking about how um, it is easy to get con- to it's easy to get discouraged in our Christian life when we feel like we are not living up to it's not even an expectation, but living up to a standard of what we think a lot of other people have attained in their spiritual life, but we have not. And uh, it's not only um, just our friends, but also, especially, actually, our spiritual leaders. Um, That is, we look up to these people that, just like I looked up to the people in my life that I considered spiritual leaders, and I imagined that they were on a, a, a plane of spiritual existence that was far above me. Now, of course, they were more spiritually mature, they were more knowledgeable, but there were other things that I kind of imagined about them. I I actually, and I won't tell you the personalities involved that I was, because you'll recognize some of the names, but, and that's not that important, I I was tutored in a Christian community with some magnificent people, but my attitude about some of these uh, people was that they were, um, like, didn't have sin anymore in their lives. And I thought, I can't wait. I honestly had this thought. I can't wait to get to the time where I'm so mature that I'm above the earthly distractions. I'm above the ability to sin, because these guys don't sin. Of course, it's ridiculous. And as time went on, sin in their lives became evident, of course. But what we do oftentimes with our spiritual leaders is we is we have expectations of them that are not sound, and it puts them in an awkward spot because we expect things out of them that they can never deliver. And then when they finally, when their falterings finally do become visible, I almost said when they finally falter. No, they're faltering all along. But when their falters, faltering finally becomes visible, and in some cases the faltering is is huge. It's significant. Well, then that just the whole world comes crashing down. How could this happen? How could a person like this do such a thing or whatever? When in fact, we are all not just capable of sin, we are all sinning constantly. And when we have an expectation of our leaders like this, it encourages them, or let me back up, it discourages them from being transparent. That is, letting you know what's really going on. And it doesn't mean they have to air all their dirty laundry. But it does mean, it seems to me, that being authentic and transparent is a leader who helps uh, helps those who look up to the, him, him or her um, be aware that they have their own liabilities as well. Okay? And uh, if they don't if if everybody's expecting so much out of them, then then they have to kind of live up to that, and they can't be as authentic as they ought to be. Um, there was a long time when I did not want to give out autographs. I still feel uncomfortable with it. I just changed my policy, and I we had kind of a 
well, it was supposed to be kind of a policy around stand a reason, but it wasn't really enforced. Because you got kids coming up to you at events and say, oh, would you autograph my program? And my concern is, look, we're not rock stars. We're not celebrities. We're brothers or sisters in Christ that are trying to make a difference like anybody else and trying to be faithful. And we have some gifts that God has given us and we've cultivated, and that's good. And I'm glad people benefited from it, but we're not rock stars. Yet I could see it... (laughs) in their eyes, the people's eyes, and, and uh, it's flattering, but there's a danger there. And so my concern was, I don't want to be perceived that way, and so this is why I had this rule. And I finally abandoned it because it just caused too many hurt feelings. And uh, But now when I do give an autograph, apart from signing a book, which is standard, and that's not a problem for me, but you, you've got a program, autograph the program, I finally decided, okay, I'll do this, but I I offer my caveat, and I let them know. So we have this view of our spiritual leaders that creates problems for the spiritual leaders, and it creates problems for for those who look up to them, because they're not—they sometimes feel, well, because they're in this spiritually superior place— God can use them, but I'll never be there. I'm not there now, so God isn't going to use me. And uh, and this, I think, is a disservice people do to themselves when they view their leaders in this fashion. And the point of this of the talk I was giving last weekend at the men's retreat was that um, the, there is no spiritual pixie dust that is going to transform us. We just kind of get in the Shekinah glory, and then we're just changed just like that. But rather, the change that needs to take place in our life happens over a, a, you know, a long period of time. And this, is, this was part of what I was pointing out last week. One of the hard realities is, is spiritual growth takes lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of time, okay? Uh, I said last week, I mean the last show. Uh, The other thing that I wanted to mention that I hinted at is that spiritual growth is very—well, I used to say uh, confusing, all right? Because you look around your life and you are trying to figure out what God's doing or what's going on or what the right response is, or you're hitting these speed bumps in your life, and, okay, what's up with that? I'm confused, But when I taught about this Christian life being confusing, I had some scribe point out that God is not the author of confusion. Of course, that wasn't what I was referring to, but so I just abandoned that and used another word to describe it, and that is spiritual growth is perplexing. (laughs) So there's my synonym for confused. Why would I say that? Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. We are perplexed. We are afflicted and perplexed. Now, we're not totally wiped out in our affliction. We're not crushed. And we are perplexed, but we are not despairing. And in in a sense, that phrase right there captures my point here. Being perplexed is normal as a Christian, but that doesn't mean we need to despair. And I find right now, as I mentioned, I think in the last show, that I my heart is 
at this moment being instructed by Second Corinthians four eight, which I've just read. We are perplexed, but not despairing. I think there is this sense that the older we grow in the Lord, the more clear things become. Uh, and I'm speaking more in the sense of more, things become more clear regarding what God is working and doing and what he is accomplishing in the world. Um, I think that as I've grown in the Lord and my knowledge of the Word and the knowledge of culture, there are things that stand out with crystal clarity for me in the world. I see that, and I say, I know what that is. It's the world of ideas, and this is a false idea, a philosophy of man that's being smuggled in, subterfuge, all gussied up and made to look good, sanitized, maybe even with spiritual language, but it's still a lie. Now, I will uh, I will say, I think I've gotten a whole lot better at that over the years. But, of course, that's knowing the signs of the times and understanding the world of ideas and how ideas have consequences and understanding how rhetoric and, and, uh, and certain types of language can distort and twist and hide the danger. What I'm talking about being perplexed about is, is not about that. <laughs> it's being perplexed about God. What the heck is going on here? I remember many, many years ago, well, many, many, maybe 15 years ago, I got, I got, I got a lot of years behind me, so many, many, you know, could be all kinds of numbers. And a dear friend uh, had, had lost his son, um, and when I saw him, he was, he, he, he said, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what God's doing. There are a lot of people around. He's talking to a lot of people. He just saw me, shook my hand, gave me a hug. I don't know what God's doing. He's doing something. You know, that dear friend from so many years ago may still know, not know what God was doing in that circumstance. He certainly was perplexed. It was an unbelievably painful event. No parent should have to bury their child. Nevertheless, a faithful Christian throughout, still perplexed. I suspect a little despairing at that point, too, and maybe for a long time afterwards, considering the gravity of what took place, it's entirely understanding, understandable. And we think God is going to come down out of heaven and say, yeah, I know that looks bad, but here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm doing. You know, the book of Proverbs says this, chapter 20, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. So the writer is acknowledging the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And it, it's, you know, Proverbs are pithy statements that are truths about life. They're not promises, really. They're patterns. But it's, it's insight. It's meant to instruct us about life. Are you confused? Oh. Are you walking with God? God's in your life. You're following God's ways. Of course you're going to be confused. It's almost what he's saying. If, if this is God, how are you going to understand his ways? 
all that's going on, the ins and the outs. Now, sometimes we do get a picture of it after the fact. Sometimes, and I'm, I'm thinking about some particulars right now, just early on in my life, back in the 80s, the early 80s, a massive disappointments and emotional pain that I experienced then, asking, what is going on? And now, genuinely, as I look back, I see that that whole experience was absolutely necessary in my life to do the kind of work that was necessary for to prepare me for things that were to come. So sometimes in in hindsight, we are able to look back and we're able to see, oh, I get it. No, that's not always the case. Sometimes God's purposes that confuse us may not work themselves out for generations, for hundreds of years. When man's steps are ordained by the Lord, we're not going to figure it out. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, says the Lord. That's Isaiah 55. It isn't like, and this I think is part of the appeal of the whole hearing from God. Um, how do I want to describe it? Concept. Popular appealing concept. If we can kind of open the channels and get our private messages from God, and that that notion is not even remotely biblical when it is characterized as something that is to be available to every Christian. Well, this is a way of kind of getting us out of our confusion, isn't it? This is why people go to, to, well, look at the King Saul went to the Witch of Endor so he could get some information because Samuel was gone and he wasn't getting the inside stuff, so he resurrected this witch, basically. I mean, when I say resurrected, she was in hiding because it, witches were illegal, right? And so now he's, he's going to do the illegal thing to get the information that he needs. He can't stand being perplexed, and it didn't work out well for him or his sons, Jonathan being one of them. And But I think the impulse is because we want to know. I would love to have God talk to me. I have lots of questions right now, right here. I want answers for them today. I have questions that have come up today that I want answers for today is what I'm saying. This is very real. I understand it entirely. But, but God ain't talking for the most part. And so we, we face circumstances that are completely perplexing to us, that, that completely overwhelm us sometimes. And we wonder, what is God doing? And I will tell you, frankly, when I have tried to divine what he was up to, and it seemed that there were a number of ducks in a row that were lining up to a certain end, I'm thinking, oh, I got it. Oh, oh, I see what's going on. I know what God's up to here. Okay, we're going to this destination here. And then there's this radical left turn or about face, oh, and we are not going to that destination. We go someplace completely different. And sometimes that doesn't make any sense to me at all. The times when I thought I was figuring it out and we were moving to a certain place, I... I was wrong. 
I'm pausing a little bit thinking about it. It's, it's almost like you want to do a reverse psychology on God. Well, I think this bad situation in my relationship with people I love is going, okay, it's going to end up this way. And then that's what we would like it to end up. And there's indications that it's moving in that direction. And part of me wants to say, don't even think that, Greg, because God's going to fool you and he's going to go somewhere else. Think of some other thing and fool him, right? Reverse psychology on God. Because I don't know. I cannot divine the designs. I am confused so much of the time in my Christian life. Now, that does not mean that I'm confused about how I am to live in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the uncertainty about where we're going. That is clear through and through. Let him who suffers according to the will of God entrust himself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. How about that one? That's a that's pretty straightforward. That's First Peter, and there's there's more in First Peter, by the way, uh, of that sort. You know, you have been called for this purpose to suffer, just as Christ did. That's chapter two. In fact, what credit is there? Uh, Peter says, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. That's no big deal. If you're sinning and you're getting what your sin results in, the consequence, but he says, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this, and watch this, I like this line, this finds favor with God. So I can't figure out all these things, but I want to make sure that if I'm I'm in a bind about something. It's not because I did something stupid. I'm in a bind because I did what was right. And when I'm in a bind there, if I patiently endure it, then God is happy with me. God is happy with me. This finds favor with God. And this is just before the section where Jesus is now invoked as an example of this thing. And it says there, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, in other words, he didn't, he didn't return evil for evil. While suffering, he, did, he uttered no threats. I'm going to get you. You'll be sorry. Wait until the tables have turned. He uttered no threats. But he did something. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 10 to the disciples that they were not to fear their opposition because there is nothing hidden that will not be made known. They don't fear them. Because there is going to be a day of reckoning when everything will be made clear. Okay? And this is similar here. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. God is going to make an assessment that's sound, accurate, and righteous. That's the one we trust in, and that's the one we show our trust by obeying. So there's something we could do. 
even when we're perplexed, even when we're in difficult straits, even when we're, we don't know what the heck is going on or where it's going to. We still can be virtuous in the circumstance. And, and in this case, I think the concept of wait on the Lord is entirely appropriate. Because I think that phrase from Isaiah, wherever it is, is it doesn't mean that we're waiting for him to tell us what to do. That is not the context. It's when there is striving, and we are told to, okay, settle down, take a deep breath. God is in charge. Just wait on him. Wait for him to do what he can on, he, he only can do. I think that's what's going on there. So the key here is, though spiritual growth is perplexing, even for long-haul Christians, mature Christians, I'm 48 years in the Lord. That's a pretty good haul. I'm still perplexed. I am this moment, as I'm speaking, perplexed about very weighty things that are happening in my life. And I have marching orders. They're not always easy to put into practice. Those ones I just mentioned, keep entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Trust, I trust things to him in doing what is right. Oh, this is all First Peter, a lot of that in there, because this is a suffering book. I have more to say about the suffering issue in general, but, I mean, this part of the perplexity. Perplexity, is that a word? When we are perplexed, what... What do we do? There it is. All right. Aslan is not a tame lion. But notice, Aslan was never far away, even though people weren't clued in to what he was doing. When he was necessary, when he was needed, absolutely, he showed up. And there's no pixie dust that's going to make your walk with God intelligible all the time. It's okay. You're not substandard because of that. It's okay to be perplexed at times. Even Paul was perplexed, but not forsake, not, not, how did he put it? Not despairing. Why? Why not despair? Because he was in God's hands and God can accomplish what he wants, whether you make sense of the process or not. Let me say that again, and then we'll take a break. Perplexed but not despairing. Why not? Because God can accomplish what he wants, whether you make sense of the process or not. And there you have it. All right. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Your call is coming up. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. 
Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All righty. It is, it is I, nominative case. I am back. Uh, and uh, this is Ken in Texas. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Greg, I am so very honored to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Made you made such a great impact on my thinking. I appreciate oh, it. Well, you're so welcome. And in your opening monologue, I, I kind of laughed a little bit. Uh, not that it was, uh, it was obviously a, a solemn topic, but you had said there that you were not a rock star. And <laughs> I had you, you were my prophet, Biola. And you were, I don't know if you were late coming in or I was early, but I was waiting for you to come in for your first lecture. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, why do I feel like I'm 18 years old waiting for Van Halen? To oh, gosh. Oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that's flattering. And I, I'm humbled by that, really. But I'm um, just a guy. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I have, speaking of thinking, I have thought myself into a corner. Okay. And I need help getting out. I feel like saying, help, I've fallen into the matrix and I can't get out. Uh, okay. Um, you know that uh, Daniel Dennett is famous as a t- determinist for saying that, you know, what humans perceive to be their conscious existence is, in fact, an illusion. Yeah. And well, with you and possibly. Oh, go ahead. Yes. I, I mean, just um, my understanding is what he said is that not that what they perceive about their consciousness is an illusion, but consciousness itself is an illusion. And the reason he says this is because consciousness cannot be reduced to something material. He is a materialist. That means everything that really exists has to be material. Consciousness is not material, therefore consciousness doesn't really exist. Well, then what is it that we're aware of? And he says what we're aware of is an illusion. That's the that's my understanding of his view. Not that there can I agree be with things... That, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I agree with that, but with the way you just said that actually may solve this problem. I hadn't thought of it exactly that way before. It, it, it solves your problem, did you say? I said it may, um, because, well, I have consistently responded to that assertion by noting that such statements are self-defeating, and maybe because of listening to you before, or maybe I came up with this on my own, I don't know, but... I do agree um, with you, by the way. I think they are self-defeating, okay? Um, but I'm curious what, only you, conscious what, you make, what you think is self-defeating about it. Well, because it seems to me that, and this is, what I, this is how I frequently respond, only conscious entities can experience an illusion as only conscious entities can think and be deluded about uh-huh. their thoughts. That's right. Okay, I got something falling over here in the middle of my 
Oh, there it is. I fixed it. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, only conscious. Only, this, I think you're really onto it. Only conscious beings can think that consciousness is an illusion, and so there there needs to be consciousness in place to even have any illusion at all. All right. Um, this is a type of suicide. Um, it might be considered, uh, uh, in my characterization in the tactics book, as infanticide suicide, because um, there is, there is an, there is an something's got to be in place for the ch- the objection to be raised. But the objection itself um, is it is meant to assault that thing that's in place. The thing in place is the parent concept, and so that ends up destroying the child, which is the objection. That's why I call it infanticide. Um, and I think you're right here. To me, the simple way of responding to this is when somebody says consciousness is an illusion, and that is the claim that he was making, as my understanding. I, I saw him, He's you know, I saw the YouTube thing. Then I have to ask myself, what is an illusion? All right. An illusion (laughs) is when your consciousness is being appeared to falsely. So you have to have a consciousness to have a false awareness of something else. That false awareness is an illusion. Non-conscious things don't have illusions. So if consciousness is the illusion, then what is it that is having or possessing the illusion? Is this another illusion of consciousness? Is an illusion having an illusion? Right. So th- that I, I, am, I agree with you that when you understand the nature of the claim properly, it's obviously self-refuting. But a lot of well, people don't so, see that, you know, until it's kind of spelled out. Go ahead. Well, so that, so that's been my, you know, general offer when uh, responding to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am working on a, a curriculum for a school where I'm an administrator. Mm-hmm. And in this process, um, it got me thinking, I, I was dealing with um, morality, which led to things like consciousness and free will and um, dualism and substance dualism, sure. and those kinds of things, which led me to, you know, the, the typical response from a lot of the students is, you know, something along the lines of the matrix that, you know, just generally, this is just the way they've been brought up to think about the world with, mm-hmm. you know, I'm well, so curious, by the way, how, how old are these students? They're secondary. So the ones that I'll actually be the ones that will actually be using this curriculum are juniors and seniors, usually seniors. In high school. Okay, so yeah. and and so they are suspicious that their experience may be the an experience of a matrix kind of thing where the reality that they are perceiving is not the real reality. Well, I doubt they're actually suspicious, but they run around with platitudes ready to defend any position that encroaches upon their ability to yeah. live life as they would otherwise. Oh, well, that's true. I, you have nailed it. And I, I was talking, I think, with an earlier caller this hour or the one before along the same lines. This is exactly what's going on. Everybody is a common sense. Human beings are common sense realists when it get, when push comes to shove. But they play games, just as I did in the 60s, 
as a non-Christian with immorality, we play games to to sanitize our own behaviors and what we want. We're narcissistic, okay? And that's not changed since the fall. This is, that right. you know, we're going to listen to ourselves and to what our eyes tell us is good instead of listening to God. We're listening to what's on the inside instead of what's on the outside. And that's the difference between subjectivism on the inside and objectivism on the outside. And so, uh, as a result, you know, we got all kinds of crazy things that are going on. So I think you're spot on there with the students, that they're going to use it just to justify stuff. But here's the irony in a way. Anybody that would invoke the Matrix, ask them where they got the idea of a Matrix. Well, they got it from a movie they saw. Now, did they see that movie in the Matrix, or did they see that movie in in reality? <laughs> That's good. I mean, it's the same kind that's really of. Good. That's the same kind of problem, you know. Is as if 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 um, if they're in the matrix, then the movie, the matrix, is part of the matrix, and they're not going to know it. Right. Only those that right. have well, a privileged actually... position of a. Th- oh, I just one other, one other thought that came to mind because I know you have more to say, but there is a certain sense, in a very qualified sense, that the matrix is. Uh, there's an analog there for us. And um, w- w- what I, s- I was going to say is that if you, the only way you can know if you're in a matrix is if you're in a position of a privileged position of observation. You're in a certain sense outside, like there are characters, individuals, and in, I only saw the first Matrix movie. Okay, and it was too confusing for me, so I wasn't a fan. But no, there are people outside the Matrix, and it's kind of like, what, if you take the pill, then you're gone forever. If you don't take the pill, then you get to see the world the way it really is. So you've got a few who really see the world the way it really is, and they are, and some of them are involved in manipulating the world to look so that reality is twisted and distorted in some way. Well, this is true. Um, We are... Uh, that we are held captive by the devil to do as well. And he has schemes, Ephesians 6, and he uses those schemes to manipulate us and, and make right look wrong and wrong look right. And um, everything's upside down. And so, so how do we escape that? We have, to some degree, not in everything, but to some degree, <clears throat> we need another outsider, God, to tell us what the truth of the world actually is. Someone who sees without distortion, who sees past all of these things. So there is an analog there of sorts that one can draw on. But generally, that's not the conclusion I draw. And what was it you were going to say? I cut you off there. Sorry. Well, it's just that as, as I was thinking through this, I wanted to be able to address in the curriculum in some shorthand way, uh, this idea that we might be caught up in some simulation or the analog, to use your word, of the brain to a computer and the brain states to computer states, that kind of thing. It got me thinking about uh, artificial intelligence and Turing's test, and quite to my surprise, I devised a scenario that's left me stuck in the matrix. so, So here it is. Let's say that we define consciousness as simply an awareness of oneself and faculties, which is kind of a generic right. uh, definition. I think that's fine. And then let's say we have a team of brilliant software designers that produce an operating system called, we'll call it self. And this operating system provides a sense of self for the computer. So that when, it seems like a really dumb design, but it it it. When a computer performs an operation, this operating system 
if it's loaded, will allow the computer to, to perform that operation with some sense of personal realization, accomplishment, failure, or something like that. With we can a, a sense that, of accomplishment? Okay. Yeah, or personal realization of some, so in, in a sense of I, a sense of the id or the psyche, it, because it's it's clever programming designed to give, for some reason, we've, we've decided this would be a good idea to give a computer the sense of self. And you and I would agree that this computer's experience, in quotes, would merely be a simulation of human self-awareness defined by that clever programming. But the computer, clearly, only simulating self-awareness, would be suffering the illusion of consciousness. Okay. And so if that's true... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. You want to jump in? I'll let you finish your sentence. That's okay. Okay, so if that's true, it seems that a non-conscious entity can experience an illusion of consciousness. Okay. And so I'm wondering if my response to Dennett's statement is is flawed. Yeah, n- none of what you described makes sense in the, I mean, in the, in the sense that it doesn't work. Listen here, you said, design a computer that has a sense of self, but it doesn't actually have a self. Well, it can't have right. a sense of self without having a self to sense it. You said it, the computer have a sense of accomplishment. That takes a first-person conscious perspective. So what what you're you're suggesting is they can have experiences that are uniquely conscious experiences, but no consciousness. And so you're not going to have that. There's no way to have that. You can tell a story like you have, and for some people, it will sound persuasive. You might even be able to put it into a movie or something like that. But you can't have, you can't build a a computer with a false sense of self, because the sense itself is just, it is a self. <laughs> to have the sense makes it an immaterial self. And um, and I, I somebody would say, you know, when I'm talking in the past about the mind-body problem, and people have said, well, there's no soul, we're just a bunch of meat, you know, and all this. What if I, com- what if I could create a computer that could do all of these same things that we do? think and everything. I said, well, then the computer would have a soul. And the reason it would have a soul is because it is performing behaviors that only conscious souls can perform. A rock cannot have a sense of self. If the rock is possessed of a consciousness already, it can be self-aware or not, but it has to have the consciousness to have a sense of self. And uh, personal relationships, you talked about sense of accomplishments, experiences, the word you were, I wrote some of these down. Um, All of these things are by nature functions of consciousness. So they can't be characterized as existing without a consciousness. Okay, so what if I said, I'm going to create an object that that extends in space that has mass and that has weight but is not physical and you're going to say well you can't do that because to extend in space and have mass and weight just is what makes something physical mm-hmm. so and that's the same thing that you have done with your your narrative here I, I don't think what you've done is created a, a scenario that describes a a something that is conscious 
uh, of of it's the and still has the has an illusion of consciousness. It wouldn't be an illusion. It would be genuine consciousness. All of those things that you described are features of consciousness. Any machine that had those things, a sense of self, a sense of accomplishment, be able to be in personal relationships, experience things, that wouldn't be a that would be a that would not be anything mechanical, machine like that does that. It would be an invisible self that had has has somehow become united with the machine, which in a sense is what human bodies are. We are machines made of meat, but are possessed of a, a rational soul that 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 um, you know that animates the meat and is self-aware because that's a nature because it's self-aware, which proves it's conscious. Now you can be conscious and not be self-aware. I think that's possible. You know, you could have you could be aware of things and not have the sense that it is yourself that is being aware. Children, babies, infants, newborns. Apparently, well, they don't have a good development as of of an ego individual self. They just are aware of things, but not of themselves as a self. So, I'm I'm got one more thing to say to this, and then I I, I wish I knew more about computer programming so I could examine this a little more deeply because everything you're saying makes total sense to me. Yeah, but. I'm also thinking It's common about, sense. It ju- it is common sense when you think about it and you th- and you what you reflect on the nature of consciousness. Okay, go ahead. It seems to me that some of these things are products of consciousness though rather than consciousness themselves. And when I was thinking about um when you were talking I was thinking, well, you know, the old axiom, how do you know that you weren't born a minute ago uh at age with a full belly, sure, you know, that kind of thing, right? So you can be, you can certainly be deluded about reality, and it, 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 again, I don't know enough about programming. I'm thinking in terms of counterfactuals. We, I would think that we would be able to create a program that would say, "Your name, talking to the computer, is this." Give it, you know, a series of lies. You were born this day, and so that's its operating all, system. All you can, but, that, but all you're doing is zeros and ones. You, you're just setting up the dominoes in a certain order. Let's just say you have all these dominoes that you set up, and then you knock one domino over, and when they all fall over, it spells howdy doody. The dominoes aren't saying howdy doody. They're not aware of howdy doody. You have just you have just programmed them to create these words that you recognize. Not the the dominoes don't, and the same thing with the computer. It doesn't matter how much they call it artificial intelligence for a reason. It's not real intelligence, and it may be able to do all kinds of incredible things, but it doesn't think. All right, it has to be programmed in a very particular way, and if it turns out that you end up with a computer that that manifests characteristics of real consciousness, and I don't think that's possible. It's a it's a trick. That's why it's, it's fake. It's faux consciousness. But real consciousness, then the computer would have a soul. Because these are of necessity characteristics of consciousness They are and souls. They are not characteristics of matter. And all that takes, all I can say is, oh, prove it to me. Well, just reflect on it. Right. Having and, a thought. I, is, I by the, 100% agree with you. My question would not be whether, you know, because that's what Turing's test is. It's this idea that, you know, the, the, the 
computer has now passed its test if an interrogator cannot determine whether it's a computer or not. Well, that didn't really prove anything except the interrogator is lacking some knowledge. It doesn't actually prove that the computer's thinking. It, it simply proves that they can mimic uh, human behavior yeah. such that the interrogator yeah. starts to believe that. And, and I think that's all this would be, yeah. even if it were possible. Or it's I was artificial. just wondering, would the, yeah, I mean, no question. No question. It's not. It's, it's mimicking human uh, self-actualization, or that's probably not something word, like that. Mimicking, yeah. right? When I, you I, say, I agree with that completely. I'm just okay. wondering if then, then you're not the going to be able to create a computer with a sense of self. It is okay. not going to have a sense of self because there's no self for it to have a sense of. Not a self that is a conscious self. It is just a lump of stuff. It's just a bunch of molecules in a certain order. And that that order can do stuff, but it the, what it does is not conscious. This is the difference between sentient creatures and non sentient creatures. There is a and this why by the way this is why Daniel Dennis says consciousness is an illusion because it cannot be reduced to something physical, and why why uh, Thomas Nagel over at uh, uh, New York University um, has written this book about the why the neo Darwinian. Uh, it's something like why the neo materialistic neo Darwinian view of the world is almost certainly false, and that's because it cannot explain consciousness. And consciousness is one of the most one of the, one of the most powerful features of reality. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate taking so much time with me. All right, Ken. Good talking to you. And let's go to uh, let's go to break very quickly here, and uh, then get back with our our last caller. Stay with us. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. All 
righty. Final segment and final caller, Jared. And you've been on for over an hour, Jared. You're a, you're a hearty guy. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg, for having me. I've been uh, enjoying the show while I while I wait to engage you. So okay, thanks a lot. that's good. I'm glad glad to hear that. So, what's on your mind? Uh, my question is: I I work in a higher education uh, institution here on the Pacific Northwest, and just did a mandatory staff training with about 150 individuals, and in it, they claimed that uh, missionary work, along with international or transracial adoptions are a component of what they call white saviorism. Uh-huh. And they define it as people who intend to make a difference without stopping to consider whether that difference might not, in fact, have more negative effects than positive ones. So I guess my question is, what would be a good Christian response in regards to... Sure. Um, okay, good. Uh, I'm just taking some notes so I get the point down. Um, this is so. I was telling Amy a moment ago when I hear phrases like this, white saviorism. I, I, I it's hard to take it seriously. I want to say, are you kidding? So now you've given me a definition. People who want to make a difference, and they are not, they are not mindful of whether their difference would be more negative than positive. Yep. First of all, what what does that have to do with whiteness? And what does that have to do with missionary work? Missionaries obviously want to make a difference. But what does anything... Well, I mean, isn't this true of human beings in all kinds of circumstances who want to make a difference for good and may realize, not realize the impact for bad it's having? I mean, this... And not only is it not only is it not not only is it a kind of other examples of this that have nothing to do with skin color this may mm-hmm. describe a human fa- uh, f- f- frailty failure or something like that but why doesn't this apply to wokeism why wouldn't wokeism be also a concern you know what i mean but you know what i mean by wokeism right yeah, okay, so wh- wh- how is it that wokeism escapes the same charge? Because remember, this charge seems to me to have nothing to do with people being white. I, I don't understand. I-, I actually thought you were going to give me a different definition. When I read this <laughs> definition that you gave me, wh- wh- how did white, how did skin color get in there? And by the way, is it possible that wokeism could be invading cultures— Oh, and this is white culture, by the way, which they want to invade, a different culture, right? They definitely want to invade white culture. And isn't it possible that though they want to do good, they're doing more harm than good? Maybe this is the question to ask. How, uh, how does, does, first of all, what does white have to do with this? That's the one question I would ask. Well, mm-hmm. white people do this. Do people of color do this? Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Then why is this a, a, a why is this l- labeled as a white problem when it sounds to me like it's more of a human problem? Okay. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what other ideologies might be like white missionaries? Right. It, I mean, is that what you were asking about missionaries who go in or or uh, they're trying to do some good and preach the gospel or whatever? Yeah, that's their claim. So they gave real-life examples that they listed was missionary work, 
voluntourism, teach for America, and international or transracial adoption. Okay, sure. I, I definitely, I definitely think that in that those cases and every single enterprise that anyone does with a good intention could have harmful consequences that were not intended. This is not a profound observation. But what it is an attempt to do is single out those enterprises and go after them and disqualify them instead of saying, you know, we ought to be careful not to have a harmful impact when we mean to have a good impact. But even, okay, so I'm kind of working through this with you a little bit in my mind here, and I hope you're taking some notes about the kinds of questions that I'm asking. But even the question of what is harmful and what is good needs clarification. Who decides what is a harm and what is a good? Well, in in a sense, and now I'm just going to play the relativism card on the relativists. Who who gives this group the right to determine whether the other groups that they are singling out are doing more harm than good? You have to make a moral judgment to make that assessment. This is good. This is bad. And there's more bad being done than good. These are all assessments they have to make. Okay, based on what? Are you making the assessment of what is harmful and what is good? All right. And what about wokeism? This wokeism, the movement that is now trying to address these grievances that they think are real, they're trying to do good. What is the harm that they are doing while they're trying to do good. Why cannot that the same question be asked of this enterprise that mm-hmm. are being asked of the other enterprises? Right. That's what I thought while I sat in the in the training session is are they not being saviors of this ideology oh, man. And, and training me right. where I'm feeling harmed in this uh, training session. Okay. In, in so that's that's well put. Uh, Jared, that's really well put. Are you trying to save anybody here with this approach? Are you saving people from evil? And mm-hmm. you're saving them from evil to what? Your point of view. So tell me, how are you different from the missionaries that you're concerned about? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I know what they're going to say. I, I'll tell you right now what they're going to say. All right? Because I have raised similar kinds of questions with others in the past. And here's what they say. Because we're actually the right, true, good people. Mm-hmm. We're the good people. We're right. They're wrong. That's what they say. It's just so glaring. But of course, if, if you're relativistic, when you say you're right, if that's their view, then, then you're only right for you. Mm-hmm. Why don't you leave these white people alone and, and quit invading their culture and trying to persuade them of something different, your view? Why are you trying to save them? You know, you're probably hurting them. And incidentally, wokeism is destructive. And we see all kinds of examples of that. Because what it does in many cases is it, it bears false witness against our neighbors. We are mm-hmm. claiming people are evil when they're not. And we are also associating the evil they're doing with their skin color. Which mm-hmm. is, that's racial essentialism. Which is and not knowing the heart. 
they're looking on the outside, exactly, not the, not the heart. Yeah, exactly. So that is what is was the classic type of racism that was so bad. Racism has been redefined in terms of tower, power, but even if you redefine the racism in terms of power, this other skin color bigotry, whatever you call it, is still in play. It was evil mm-hmm. in the past. It is evil now, and that's what they're doing. You can call it skin color bigotry if you don't want to call it racism, if they won't let you call it racism, but mm-hmm, that's, sure. that's, that's what it is. And uh, and and so it, this is one of those cases where there's this high-minded mentality that is um, that is being offered by the saviors of the world, the woke crowd that judges other people on false standards and tries to take the high moral ground and then and does the very thing that it's claiming these other guilty groups should not be doing. OK, classic case of self-refutation or suicide. Uh, Jared, time's up. Um, Glad to be able to talk with you a little bit about that. Thank you for waiting so long, and I hope it helps you with your class. I'll be interested if you want to call me back sometime after this plays out a little bit more to find out what actually happened there. All the best. And uh, that's it for this hour, friends. Thank you for being part of it. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand of Reason. Give them heaven. All right? Bye-bye now.